This is the Mobile Home Park Lawyer Podcast with Fur Neiman. If you're looking to generate wealth and passive income in the lucrative world of mobile home parks, you're in the right place. You'll discover solutions to the common legal and operational pitfalls and how to optimize parks to maximize income. Your host is in the trenches. He's a real estate attorney, financial analyst, and mobile home park investor and operator. Now, let's turn it over to Fern Neiman. Welcome back, MHP Nation. Here we are again today with another great episode for you. Today, I got a real sexy topic for you. Contracts. Yeah, I know I'm a lawyer, so you may think contracts are boring to everybody but us. But before you hang up on me, hold on. Because today, I'm going to show you and talk to you about 30 plus provisions that must be in your contract. And then to make it interesting, I'm going to include four key provisions that are going to save you money or make you money. You don't have to take tons of notes if you're driving, that's okay, because I'm going to have an opportunity at the end of this podcast to give you access to a link where you can have this list of 30 plus provisions. Before we get going, I got a question for you. Are you of the belief that all purchase and sales contracts are the same? Let me guess. You got that from LegalZoom. Well, I hate to burst your bubble, but they're not the same. And I've seen some really crappy contracts lately. Getting right to the point, I mean, this is important. Whether you're buying, selling, or assigning a purchase and sales contract. And I've really seen a lot of bad contracts from assignment guys. I'm talking one-page contracts. That's crazy. You can't get it all in one page. You've got to be used some seriously small fine print and small font. Don't recommend it. So I'm going to jump into the next 30 or so provisions that you got to include. Some of them are pretty basic, but some of them are more complex, and I'll dive into those with a little more detail. First off, get the full and correct legal name of the seller. Don't just put John Smith if it's owned by John Smith LLC. You can find this quite easily by looking up the property at the county records. Pretty easy to find online pretty much anywhere nowadays. It'll be confirmed later by the title company, but get it right in your LOI, your letter of intent, and then get it right in your contract. Next, the full and correct legal name of the buyer. That's you, right? And you want to have the buyer's right to assign a contract. And I would not put on a contract, like I don't put Ferd Neiman, I don't put Ferd Neiman and or signs. I put generally my parent company, Third Four Properties and or signs. Third Four Properties owns no properties. It's a paper tiger. It's my holding company. I then assign every contract to a special purpose entity, a new LLC that I create. But also by having that language in there and or assigns, it gives me the flexibility to assign the contract to somebody else, ideally to anybody else. A smart seller's attorney will try to limit that to a related entity. So I can't just assign it to John Smith and then I potentially just walk away or I try to be the middleman and make a buck, which that's really what assignment guys do is they make a, they're the middleman and they make a buck. And sometimes the seller doesn't care as long as they get their, their piece. But it's really important to have good assignment language and then all these good provisions in your contract. Quick sidebar, I had a contract under assignment in Missouri. And I had a really short time to raise about a million bucks. And I wasn't sure at the time I was going to get it done. This was the first time raising capital and didn't know if I was going to get it done. I didn't have that kind of money laying around myself. So I tried to assign it. And I didn't have time to shop it on the open market. I tried to assign it to one of the top five operators in the country, actually two of them, because they both owned parks in the same municipality. So I got a hold of them, found them. One of the groups said, no way, no interest. Okay. The other group said, we're interested. Send us your contract. They didn't like my contract. They said, we can't do it. We need these, this term, this term, this term, and this term. It's like, what? They said, yeah, you, you can't do it, buddy. We need our contract. Our lawyers require it. 
So I said, well, I can't really do that. I've built rapport with the seller, and I'm not able to get him to say, oh, by the way, here's this new big rich group. Uh, Resign with them, and trust me, I'm not getting paid in the middle. It would have cut me out of the deal. So I told these guys, no thanks. In the meantime, I was like, what's wrong with my contract? I've been using this to buy buy and sell properties for several years now, including with the retail developer where we bought property in the tens of millions of dollars. And, you know, just uh, felt like it was a good contract. Well, turns out it was. And the head attorney called me about two weeks later and said, I was on vacation. I looked at your contract. It's fine. The baby lawyer who was covering for me when I was out of town didn't recognize that you had certain provisions in different places, but they were all really there. So we'd like to assign your deal. My asking price was 165000 by the way. I told him at this point I had already raised the capital. And he said, okay, how about two k, $200,000. So there I was. I had almost no money and minimal time in this deal at this point. I was about to make $200,000. But it was too late. I'd already made some commitments to my investors, and I wanted to do the deal myself. I thought if I'm ever going to be a promoter and a syndicator, I need to get one under my belt. And that's what I did. And we got it done. And I don't think I ruined the relationship with that buyer but I didn't end up assigning it to him. But I had the right to, and that's that's really important. That wasn't even one of the four key provisions, but now that, now that I think about it, that's also a key provision. Get this stupid assignment in there. Okay, next, get the legal description of the property in there. Don't just put 123 Main Street. Pull the records from the county. But typically, the county's gonna, they're not gonna have a guarantee that it's accurate. So you're gonna have to have in your Exhibit A, where you have the legal description, Put in there in parentheses, to be verified by a licensed surveyor in X state. Okay, but do that. Also include the address of the property. That's next. Next, if you've got any personal property, list that and put it in an exhibit as well. I mean, if you've got mobile homes, then obviously try to put, you know, address, year, make, model. I try to get estimated value or insured value, and you need the VIN. If they don't have good title, you want to at least get put the homes in there without the VIN, and at least you get rights to it, and we'll cover quit claim deeds and bills of sale, that kind of stuff on another episode. But identify and specify all the personal property. If they've got any other personal property like tractors or backhoes or snow plows, you might as well put that in there too. Make sure you're buying what you think you're buying. Next, obviously you need to have the purchase price in the contract. That makes total sense. That one usually is not messed up. Next, the earnest money deposit, the amount, and then the date the earnest money is due. I mean, you want to make sure that you don't have to turn over the earnest money like at contract signing because you could quickly be in default if you've got to mail the money in or wire the money in. So generally, you get two days or five days to wire the money. Always wire the money to a title company. Never give it to the seller direct. And then next, you're going to start to you know work on the property. You want to have the right of entry, meaning the right of possession to do your due diligence. The next key provision is the title commitment. It's pretty obvious, but some things that are important in a contract that people miss is you need to have certain language in there about what type of policy, like the standard current Alta form. And then what if there are defects? And what are the objections that you're allowed and rights to cure? I mean, if I get title and it's got a bunch of crap on it that I don't like, easements or other liens, I want to object to that. And it's important for, for your attorney to provide a title objection letter, which also includes, by the way, your endorsements. Like I typically add a survey endorsement, an access endorsement, a zoning endorsement. That's basically like a supplement uh kind of additional insurance, if you will, from the title company. Sometimes in order to get those extra layers of insurance, you've got to do more than just ask for it. You gotta prove up. So you gotta get the zoning ladder, you gotta get a survey, things like that. Otherwise the title company's not gonna take that kind of risk. So we'll cover cover some of the zoning stuff in a, in a subsequent episode. But next um, you need to have reference the condition of the property. 
I mean, typically a lot of property is sold as is, where is, how is. Um, but if it's, if you got some other pr- provision, like it's not going to go down in value or it's not going to materially change, that can be negotiable. But you want to you at least need to reference in the purchase and sale contract what the represented condition is. Next, you've got the risk of loss. And this is really just if something bad happens, like an insurance claim while you're under contract, who gets the money? And this could include other provisions like condemnation, eminent domain. I mean, for example, if you're buying a property for a million dollars and during your due diligence period, before you own it, the state comes in and says, we need to take the north 10 feet of your property along the property line. That may not hurt you that much at all. You may love that or may not bug you. Well, if they're going to pay a dollar for it, no big deal. If they're going to pay $200,000 for that 10 feet, you, you don't want the seller keeping that. You want the rights to those condemnation or eminent domain proceedings. Makes sense, right? Put it in the contract. Next up, we've got the due diligence period. This is, this is a key provision here. So write this one down, due diligence period. The key here is not just the number of days that you have due diligence. Like we've got 30 days, but... I typically think it's not really fair for my time clock, my shot clock to start until I've really got the information that I need. So I t- I tend to try and most of the time can get the seller to agree that my clock doesn't start until I've received everything you're supposed to give me. That is your due diligence list. That's another item, all kinds of stuff. You can get a copy of my due diligence list um, as seller deliverables is what I call them. You can get a copy of that from my website, mobilehomelawyer.com. Mobile home but the timeline is important to start it once you get those. And not only the due diligence list, but also the title commitment, and if you can, the survey. Because what often happens is title commitment takes a couple days. Surveys could take anywhere from two weeks to eight weeks. I don't want to be burning clock. If I've got a 60-day due diligence and I'm waiting for seven weeks to get the survey, that's going to really hurt me. Because to me, and really in the law, the survey is a supplement to title. The title says there's an easement of record. Okay, well, what's the easement look like on a map? I don't know. I'm not a surveyor. I need to get a surveyor to go there and draw me a map and see if the easement is a problem or not. And really, that's just seems fair and common sense. But some people don't put that in there. And then they end up, they got a 30-day due diligence. And they're not even, they don't even have all the documents till like day 10 or day 15. It's just foolish to waste that kind of time. So in, in addition, next, number 15 of, the, is, of your due diligence period is an extension period. And typically, I say, hey, I'd like to have another 30-day extension. And I'll pay $5,000. You have an extension fee in there. You don't want to pay zero because then they could argue you don't have consideration. You got to pay at least a dollar, right? But what this does, you tell the seller, hey, look, I'm working hard on your property. I just need more time. I'm going to pay you a fee, a penalty, so to speak, to buy more time. That may be well worth it to eat, eat 5000 bucks, but to buy yourself more time to raise, raise capital from investors, do more due diligence, get your loan approved, get your other documents back, some of these other items. And typically, that money is non-refundable, but applicable to the purchase price. Maybe you can get it refundable. I doubt it. But you can, you know, typically it's non-refundable. Sometimes it's applicable to the purchase price, meaning you get a credit for it at closing. Sometimes it's not applicable and it's just pure penalty. Next up, number 16, due diligence list I already referenced. Number 17 is seller required actions. This is important. This is key. One of the seller required actions is they have to terminate any vendor contracts or personnel contracts. Another component of that is they have to send out any tenant correspondence on your behalf. Let's say, for example, a rent increase. If you've got statutory deadlines, you want to make sure that rent increase clock gets going before you own the property. But you want to have control over that and draft that. Now, sometimes, depending on the state, depending on circumstances, you may not want to send that rent increase letter. I tend to not send it if I'm going to do substantial capital expenditures and I'm going to increase the rent by more than just 10 or 15 bucks. If I'm going to increase the rent $50, 
I tend to do that after I've already delivered and already shown the new tenants that I'm going to make their community better and add value that way. I've tried to have the sellers send it out and then kind of I can try to blame it on the seller like, oh, the seller jacked up the price so you could get more from it. But it's hard to make that stick. Rumors can get around that you drafted it. So that's kind of hit or miss whether or not you want to require the technical correspondence, but you want the right to. But back to the vendor personnel, I'll give you a couple termination. I'll tell you a couple horror stories real quick. Uh, I bought a property and I required the seller to fire all the managers. And this, this sometimes they say, oh, I love the manager. Well, here's how you can pitch it to them. I need to interview and evaluate the management during my due diligence. I don't want to be tied to them and stuck with them. So I want you to sell, fire them immediately before closing. If I'm going to hire them, and hey, if they're great, why would I not? Then I will immediately rehire them on the day of closing. But what this does is this allows you to get rid of any personnel that are super overpaid. I bought a park that had negative NOI, like literally no profit, and they had an $80,000 manager. So this is for 22, 23 occupied homes, and it was crazy. There was no way I was going to rehire this person, at least at that rate. I did interview her and got to know her a little bit during due diligence, and I was at one point considering offering her a job, but it was going to be like in the $30,000 range. Well, that probably wasn't going to work anyway. Well, eventually I decided I don't want to hire her because she was bad for other reasons. Well, guess what? Shortly after closing, she filed an unemployment claim against me, which means my unemployment rate is going to go up for all my other employees as well. I'm going to end up get, end up, get stuck paying this woman's wage, and she never worked for me. I would have been screwed or potentially screwed if I didn't have this provision in my contract because you know what I got to do? I pointed to the contract and I said, look, this was a condition of closing that she be terminated. And I checked with the seller and the seller did terminate her and tell her she was not going to be rehired. So I then went to the state and I said, if she never worked for me, how could I have terminated her? She was done before I started. Thus, you can't file unemployment against me. It went round and round a few times, but ultimately that, that carried the day. I also was able to find some supplemental information that she was telling people she was leaving, you know, weeks before. So that kind of helped, you know, prove a, like an I quit attitude. If you quit, you don't get unemployment. So that's a key seller required action. Fire all personnel. Another one, there, a seller had a security contract. They had security lights like throughout the mobile home park and special cameras and 24-hour surveillance. And they could call, they could push the red button and the people would be there in five minutes. It was super heavy duty. Well, I don't remember what it cost. I want to say it was like $1,200 a month, which just was crazy. But then also they had a 10-year contract with a buyout. The seller begged me to take take it over when they realized this right before closing. Their manager had signed it. Unbelievable. The seller didn't even do it. But I, they, wanted to, they wanted to help me pay for it and they offered to pay like half. I just didn't have a need for it. So they had to eat it. They had to terminate that vendor, con- vendor contract and they had to pay a penalty. That sucks. But sorry, not sorry. Your problem. Okay, next up, number 18, you got to have prorations at closing. I mean, typically, taxes, rent, some of those things are, are prorated as of the day of closing, but make sure it's in there. If you're going to do something different, different than the norm, put it in there. I put it in there anyway. Sometimes attorneys try to say, with local customary practices, well, I don't know the local practices in every state, and I don't want to look them up and read them. Just do prorations. It's pretty fair. Number 19, seller reps and warranties. This is really important. And a lot of sellers, especially a lot of kind of elderly mom and pa, I've had some crotchety old men, they just won't represent anything. And I'm saying to them, hey, this is required. This is normal. If you don't know something, you don't have to be responsible for it. But if I find out later that you knew and you did not disclose it and you misrepresented it, well, I want the right to sue you. 
if you're being a bad guy, you deserve to be punished like a bad guy. So typical reps and warranties are things like the, the seller has the, the right to sell, owns the property. There's no other options to purchase or other or long-term leases other than the leases that for the mobile home tenants that have been disclosed and provided. But none of that stuff is there. But also it's things like seller has no information or actual knowledge of any materially adverse facts or conditions relating to the property to its present use. So things like that, like, are we, do you, are you aware that the municipality is trying to pass a new law getting rid of mobile home parks? If so, tell me, are you aware of any pending or threatened condemnation or litigation? Are you aware of any hazardous or environmental issues, any new or special taxes on the property other than those have been disclosed? Things of that sort. And there's a bunch of legalese catch-all provisions for those, but that's really the, the crux of it. And it's, that can be important is seller reps and warranties. Number 20 is going to be the, the inverse of that, buyer reps and warranties. I'm representing that I have the legal right and capacity to enter into this contract. The buyer reps are generally less important and less verbose, but it's important to put those in there as well. Uh, number 21 is the buyer's right to terminate, which is kind of uh, goes hand in glove with the due diligence period. But then as part of that, What's the provision for the earnest money deposit return? I was working on a deal a couple years ago. This was a land development and we terminated the contract. It was clear. We had six months due diligence. It was like month four. We realized the city was not going to approve our plan. So we dropped the contract. The seller was difficult and the seller said, well, I'm not giving the earnest money back. We're like, well, it says in the contract you have to give the earnest money back. Well, this seller tried to tie it up and the title companies are generally sheep and they are super weak in this. Even though the contract says so, they still sometimes fight it. But you want to have a crystal clear provision in your contract that says buyer may unilaterally terminate the contract and this shall automatically serve as the sole authorization necessary to return the earnest money. That really neuters the seller and it kind of puts the title company on hand on note too that, hey, give me my money back because it get tied up in the litigation for years. And sometimes the earnest money is a thousand bucks or five thousand bucks. It still sucks, but sometimes it's twenty five, fifty thousand dollars. You don't want to get that tied up. Because it's probably not even enough to go sue and fight over. So it just becomes like lost in outer space of title companies. Um, so you really got to get the EMD return in there. Related to that is kind of a default. The next number 22 is you need to have default and damage or breach provisions. You know, basically, like if I'm the buyer and the seller breaches, like I can make him sell me the property, specific performance. You want that thing in there. But I also can say, I don't want, if he breaches and like sells it to somebody else, that's not cool. My, my sole remedy cannot just be, oh, you get your earnest money back. Like, no, no, that's not cool. You, I need to have other damages, like punitive damages. I need damages at law and equity, which include things like return of my earnest money, return and reimbursement of my due diligence cost. It's hard to prove future profits, so you're not going to probably get that. So leaving a, a vague, nebulous term sometimes helps any damages at law or equity. So that would be the breach provisions. And then... Typically, there's a cure provision in there. Like, if somebody breaches, you have a right to cure so many days to fix it. Uh, that's not uncommon. That's pretty fair to have on both sides. Number 23, next, the closing date or timeline. I mean, typically, closing is like 10 days after the inspection period is over. Because of my floating due diligence period, I, I tend to have a floating closing period. I just say 10 days after the end of the inspection period. Where a lot of people put in, like, must close by noon on December 3rd. Like, okay, but what if there, what if that is five minutes after the inspection period? Well, it's not going to be practical to get the title company in the bank and everybody ready to rock. So I like the floating closing date. Next one's pretty obvious, easy, the contact information. Put in the buyer, seller, the respective attorneys, the title company, names, phone numbers, addresses, emails. I like to have email notification be sufficient, so you want to have their emails in there. The next one, this is a big one. This is something that 
I've kind of more recently added to my contract because of some some problems that we've had in the past. Um, and this is a closing contingency. And these are things that are out of my hand as the buyer. Basically saying, hey, my due diligence is over. I'm waiting on some third-party reports. If they come back bad, it's not my fault. If they come back late, it's not my fault. I want an I want an escape or I want an extension. And these are, I call them closing contingencies. They are things like the phase one environmental, the survey, good title, and an appraisal. If if the appraiser says I'll be done by the third and that's in your due diligence and the appraiser hasn't given me the appraisal bag, I don't want to lose my earnest money or have my earnest money go firm, meaning non-refundable, go hard. So this is a provision to kind of kick the can down the road. I'll tell you it is a little harder to get the seller to agree to this, so it doesn't always work. Uh, but a lot of times you can still kind of, I don't say sneak it in there, but you can sneak it in there. Uh, number 26 is the buyer-seller cost responsibility or cost breakdown. These are things like closing costs, like typically both parties pay their attorneys, the seller pays for the owner's and title insurance premium, the buyer pays for any lender insurance or any supplements or uh, additional endorsements to the title policy. Buyer typically pays for like environmental. Who pays for the surveys is pretty negotiable, but whatever you negotiate, you need to have it in there. It needs to be crystal clear. So put it in the contract. I've seen that happen where I saw one recently where it was like, we're going to demo 15 homes. Buyer has permission to demo. Okay. At whose cost? Because another provision said, seller shall demo, shall help demo pre-closing. Okay, well, that makes no sense. And that didn't even bring up the whole who owns title of these homes, which will be covered in a bill of sale and a closing document. But really breaking down the cost is important to have in there. Next, 27, broker representations or waivers thereof. If you if you don't have a broker, then you need to waive that. If you do have a broker, that needs to be in the contract. This protects your broker too, by the way, which they'll appreciate. But I had it happen on more than one occasion when I was doing retail where I had a commission agreement and the client didn't put it in the contract and then the client ended up stiffing me. Well, that made it a little harder. I had to sue. Okay, great. Am I going to sue for three grand or five grand? If it's 50, maybe. But put it in the contract. That makes it better for everybody. It makes it fair. 28 is survival. Survival that doesn't mean you live or die. Well, it kind of does, I guess. What it really means is your reps and warranties survive the existing contract, survive closing. So, for example, if I'm the buyer and the seller doesn't tell me and misrepresents that the city's already told them we're not going to renew your permit and the city's going to rezone the property or something like that, and then that happens, if there's no survival, if survival ends at closing, then I'm kind of out of luck. But if survival is one year post-closing, which is kind of normal, or forever, perpetuity, then I can still go back on that seller. So typically when you sell, you want to have no survival. When you buy, you want to have infinite survival. Somewhere in the middle is probably normal and reasonable, but you got to reference it. Uh, next, number 29, 1031 exchange. I think we all know what that is. If not, I'll probably cover it in a different episode. But 1031 is basically if I sell my property, I want to trade into, exchange into like-kind property, typically of equal or greater value. There's a bunch of restrictions, like you got to identify it in 45 days, you got to close in 180 days, things like that. Go through a qualified intermediary. There's some extra paperwork involved when you go through a qualified intermediary. So put a provision in your contract that both parties might or have the right to, to do a 1031 exchange, and the other party will be reasonable to just sign documents and consummate that extra transaction. It's typically pretty simple, a lot of boilerplate stuff, but put it in your contract. Otherwise, you could get, you could get stuck with a difficult adversarial party. 
Number 30, this one's brand new, COVID delays. I never had that in a contract before, but it might behoove you to put in your contract, you know, are there acts of God or third-party delays or COVID 2.0? And if there is, do I automatically get some more some more terms, some more inspection period? Next is the FERPTA provision. This is basically the U.S. government saying, we don't want people from other countries to be buying and selling property. If they, if they are, we want to know about it. you got to fill out an extra form. Title companies typically handle this as well, but you can put it in your contract to button that up. And really, really you should. And I think it's really related to anti-terrorism and where's the money going. So, FERP to provision. Next, number 32, there's a bunch of, I say boilerplate, but provisions that are always in always in contracts. Things like, this is the entire agreement. This can be signed in counterparts or signed by facsimile or email. There's a binding effect. Which state has the governing law? There's typically a severability provision, which basically means if if one provision is re, is deemed null, void, illegal, unconscionable, it doesn't ruin the rest of the document. It just cuts out that one provision. A lot of times you'll see timings of the assets. It just means that the timelines are real. They're firm. There's no floating around. It's not an estimate. Uh, confidentiality, when do you take possession, where do notices go. Sometimes you have an offer that becomes a contract, so it's just duration of offer, like this is valid until 5 o'clock on Tuesday, and after that it, it turns into a pumpkin at midnight. I guess it's 5 o'clock. Um, next, your signature block, that's pretty obvious. And then number 34, your exhibits. I talked about legal description. I like to put an, a map, an aerial, and I put hash lines around it. A big retail developer showed me this. Instead of just putting like a red square around the property, put some hash lines across it because sometimes, especially back in the day, things didn't get scanned in color. They get photocopied and you can't really see the square line very easily on a platted piece of property. But hash lines, you know that was an exhibit. Um, you want to have exhibits like a bill of sale or a formal bill of sale, assignment of leases. Sometimes you have tenant estoppels. It's not going to be quite as common in mobile home park land, but that's basically the tenant promising and signing off that everything's good with the lease. I've never actually done it on a mobile home park deal. Retail deals, or if you have a retail component or other office component as an appendage of your mobile home park, it becomes more important. Sometimes I'll put the due diligence list, the seller deliverable list in the exhibits. I don't always do that because depending on the seller, it can overwhelm them. So sometimes you, you, you use your discretion and you choose to include that during your due diligence after you've already got the property under contract. And then the last one, this is important. This is one of these key provisions to save you money. And this is the allocation of the purchase price. And this is super important because of two reasons. One, income tax depreciation and amortization, especially if you want to do a cost segregation study. Having the breakdown of the purchase price in the contract is, is very helpful if you ever get audited. The second reason you want to have the breakdown is you can help steer future property tax valuations. For example, if you were going to buy the property for a million dollars and it's currently on the books with the assessor for $200,000, there's definitely a chance you could go up in valuation. If you include, say, $300,000 of that value in goodwill, goodwill is classified by the IRS and I believe every state as intangible personal property, which means it's not ad valorem real property. So it really shouldn't be considered by the ta- by the tax assessor. There's a, there's a lot more to go into cost segregation and tax evaluations and appeals. I'll get into those in another another podcast. Uh, I've got a lot of background in both of those areas, having been a former county assessor in second biggest county in the state of Missouri, and then having read all of the audit technique guides in the IRS handbook and you know my background, financial analyst and accountant and stuff. But uh, really, that's, that's key to have that allocation of purchase price. What I typically try to do when I'm buying is I just put 
buyer shall identify and allocate the purchase project during its due diligence period. Sometimes, a lot of times that goes through and it's not adversarial as opposed to starting to pick numbers and stuff because there's a lot of subjectivity. I mean, for example, I bought a $2 million park one time. I paid 1.3. Well, where am I going to allocate my 2 million? I have some discretion probably. How much is land, which is not depreciable? How much is land or uh, property improvements like roads, utility lines, fences, monument signs, things like that? How much is personal property like tractors and mobile homes? How much is goodwill or going concern intangible? And then sometimes there's other factors in there, but um, those are the kind of the main bread and bread and butter categories. And it's really important to allocate that for both the income tax and property tax reasons. Again, more of which we'll cover later date. That pretty much wraps up the 30 or so, I think we're at 34 provisions of the key four provisions of your due diligence timeline to start after you receive the documents. The second one being make sure the seller has to terminate vendor and personnel contracts. The third one to include is to include the closing contingencies for the environmental survey, title appraisal, et cetera. And then the fourth key provision that, again, is kind of distinct in mobile home park world is the allocation of the purchase price because there's a lot of benefit to doing um, some special tax and depreciation strategies in the MHP world that we'll cover at a later date. Hope you've enjoyed this boring topic, maybe made a little more exciting today. And I hope it will save you some money or make you some money on your next deal. You've been listening to the Mobile Home Park Lawyer Podcast with Ferd Neiman. Ready to learn more? Go to www.themobilehomelawyer.com for free resources and materials to help you succeed. If you love the podcast, go to Apple Podcasts, give us your review and subscribe today. Thank you for listening. Neither the Supreme Court of Missouri nor the Missouri Bar reviews nor approves certifying organizations or specialist designations. The choice of a lawyer is an important decision and should not be based solely upon advertisements.